Don't look now, but there's something funny going on over there at the bank, George. I've never really seen one, but that's got all the earmarks of being a run. It's Monday, March 13th, 2023, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a Hoover Distinguished Policy Fellow. I'll be your moderator today. Please report that we're joined by our full complement of all three Goodfellows today. That would include the historian Neil Ferguson, the economist John Cochran, the geostrategist Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, they are Hoover Institution Senior Fellows all. And joining us today for a conversation about demographics is Nicholas Eberstadt. Nick Eberstadt's the Henry Wendt Chair in Political Economy at the American Enterprise Institute, and as I mentioned, a renowned expert in demographics. Nick, welcome to Goodfellows. Hey, thanks for inviting me, gents. Well, good to have you on. So let's talk demographics here. Uh, my understanding of demographics, Nick, it is a field that is largely fueled by projections. But when we look at projections, this is not unlike economics or politics, I suppose. But when we look at demographic projections, Nick, what is the right window for making guesses about future population changes? Are we talking five to 10 years, 10 to 20 years, 20 to 50 years, 50 to 100 years? What What is a legitimate study in your estimation? Well, I like to cheat. And I think that the cheater's way of doing this is looking out no further than about 15 or 20 years, maybe 25 at the max, because that way, uh, all of the people who are going to be around in the future already, uh, you know, mostly for the labor force and everything else, overwhelmingly born uh, today. When you look out 50 years, when you look out 100 years, you get into this thing of uh, guessing how many babies the unborn are going to be having. And not to put too fine a point on that, nobody's ever come up with a method of doing that. So that's kind of like what we'd call science fiction population. I don't like to do that part so much. Okay. And what is the demographic story in 2023? Uh, it's the long march towards uh, sub-replacement fertility all around the world uh, for reasons that we think we know, but maybe we don't. Um, we're seeing the crash of births in China. Uh, we're seeing uh, uh, declining populations throughout East Asia. Um, we may be seeing, we're already seeing a really strong drop in birth rates all through the UMA. And this is going to make for a smaller world than we thought and also a grayer world than we thought. Nick, you're being very circumspect about how far out you look, but others are not so restrained. The United Nations does its uh, population projections. And I think it's fair to say that one of the most startling things to have happened in the world of, of demographic projection over the last few years has been the downward revision of the Chinese future population. Uh, I think the last time I really thought seriously about this was about 10 years ago, but when I caught up with it in the last six months, we're suddenly looking at a scenario in which the population of China could fall by as much as half between now and the end of the century. And that's a huge story, it seems to me. You've written about this, talked about not only the causes in terms of falling fertility, but also the consequences for Chinese society. This is so important for uh, particularly Americans, but I think the whole of the West, that we should dwell on it a bit and, and let it sink in. A population decline of about half by the end of the century. Is that plausible to you, even allowing for the fact that it's beyond your 20-year range? 
Well, I mean, if I'm going to co-author a book with Isaac Asimov, sure. I mean, I think that's uh, that's fine. I'll, I'll I'll take that part. I mean, we know right now, Neil, that uh, as of the as of today, more or less at lunchtime, uh, birth levels in China, if continued, if childbearing patterns are continued, which is like the you know the cheaters, the weasels, if, but if they're continued, um, the next generation is going to be half as big as the current generation. So, I mean, we're already on that escalator. Uh, we're already definitely on that escalator. And the collapsing fertility levels in China, I think, tell us something about the future, about this world we're heading into in the next 10 or 20 or more years. But it also tells us something about uh, the dictatorship today, because uh when you when you have a when you have a country's fertility level drop by fifty percent in five years during peacetime, uh, something really strange is going on with the national mentality, and it's it's not a it's not an explosion of optimism. So I think this is telling us something about the way the Chinese people are regarding their current circumstances too. I guess the big question that I keep coming back to is, well, what would cause Chinese fertility to go up again? Uh, help us think about that. I mean, I noticed that it, that in the median or sort of middle range projection, the UN assumes that it will, in fact, recover from its current very low level, sort of half the replacement rate. But I keep asking myself, what what on the basis of past experience would would cause such an increase? Can can you give us an answer to that? Well. Well, well, Neil, I, I don't want to give away the secrets of the guild, but as you probably know, those long-term projections, since nobody actually has ever come up with a reliable method for uh, forecasts of fertility for any population where there's human volition over the, the kind of the long run, it's, it's kind of like a Rorschach test. So the people uh, sit around, they say, does this sound median to you? Does this sound low to you? And then they say, okay. And then they get together three years later and maybe they have to kind of uh, revise it. So there's no there's no theory in there. It's just a kind of a, you know, a temperature, you might say. Um, what would do it in the real world? Well, you're the historian. I mean, you've... Um, it, You've seen big uh, blips in births, like there was a there was a blip in uh, births, as I recall, in Germany after some stuff happened in the early 1930s. We had a blip uh, in the uh, after the end of World War II. Um, we've had more than a blip in Israel uh, since the 90s. It seems to be kind of sustained. Uh, it looks to me like for a fairly for an educated country, like you have to have a big change in mentality and a big change in optimism, sometimes religiosity, sometimes ideology or politics. But it has to be something big. Yeah, that seems the corollary of your your argument that what's happening here is some kind of nationwide pessimism associated with the increasingly illiberal turn that the government has taken. And for that to change, presumably, there'd have to be a, an equal and opposite improvement. Uh, I'll hand over to John. It's not just China. Of course, this is everywhere. Um, Korea is under one. Um, I just looked up the numbers for Northern Europe, uh, looking for something else. So all of Scandinavia is, is down in the 1.2 range. Uh, but so let's just back to the basic question. What do you know about why this is happening uh, across the world? 
Well, urbanization, for example. So um, I think demography was given its name by a Frenchman back in the 1850s. And uh, since then, there is a, you know, there have been thousands and thousands and thousands of studies trying to explain uh, changes in fertility, patterns in fertility, differentials in fertility. And when I said, we think we know, I, I was trying to be a little bit ironic about that because everybody knows, but they don't all know the same thing. And a lot of the things they know are patently incorrect. I came from Becker to the University of Chicago where there's sort of the Gary Becker school of things and, and lots of talk about we know what caused fertility. And I was well, always, mm, no, I, no, I, I love sainted Gary Becker's tools. I love Ted Schultz's tools. They're great tools. And they're good for as far as they go. Quality um, versus quantity trade-off, the urbanization, the women working, and so forth. That, all those fabulous insights, but it doesn't take us all the way. So, I mean, to my way of, to my own personal preferences, um, I am more persuaded by something that Lant Pritchett, now of Oxford, did back uh, almost 30 years ago than by any other study in that whole like mountain of paper that I was describing. Uh, he, he came up with this really uh, strange and bold idea that the best predictor for fertility was uh, how many children women said that they wanted. I mean, who would have thought? You know? <laughs> and, and it turns out to be really good across ethnicities, across uh, populations, across societies, across uh, historical time periods, to the extent that we've got historical you know, data on this sort of stuff. It doesn't answer the question of why those preferences change. It doesn't answer the question for how desired family size changes, but it's a it's a pretty good way to approach it. And it shows you that in low-income countries, even in countries where people, uh, where a lot of people are illiterate and there's a lot of rural living, uh, you can have a you can have involuntary you can have a voluntary below replacement childbearing regimen now, like Myanmar or Burma. I mean, it's just like the counterexample to all of the modernization theory stuff, you know. So, so what changes your mentality? I mean, look at what's happening in the Ummah. Look at what's happening in Iran. I mean, Tehran's birth rate is like Zurich. Uh, it's not because it's modernized like Zurich. And that's all happened really fast. If it makes you feel any better, historians dealing with what's already happened have really struggled. I can remember when I was uh, an undergraduate immersing myself in the great Wrigley and Schofield study on yes. the population of England and Wales before and during the Industrial Revolution. And, and that revealed a really important change that happened, which was age at marriage. Uh, they just started getting married, married younger and therefore having more children. And this big discontinuity is certainly associated with the Industrial Revolution in some way that nobody can quite define. At that point, I can remember reading all those, uh, uh, at that time, state-of-the-art papers on the demographic change. Nobody could really explain it. That something just led people in the course of the 18th century to get married younger. And that had enormous consequences for the economic history of the world. But we still don't really know why that happened. But, but Neil, look at where the long march to below replacement fertility began. Didn't start in Britain, started in France. You know, it started in France around the 1750s, but right before the uh, revolution. And not to put too fine a point on it, it was poorer than... Uh, what was to be in the UK, uh, more rural, 
less educated and uh, kind of Catholic. You know, so it kind of it it knocked all of the modernization kind of desiderata kind of uh, off to the side. Yet this was the place where the where we really, as far as we can tell, we find the origins of the long march to voluntary below replacement fertility. Ile de France, like around the outside of Paris uh, in uh, the 1750s. Can we talk about something that I got very interested in recently, which is that young people saying they're not going to have any children because the planet's uh, coming to an end. Uh, I got very uh, interested in uh, the recent uh, literature on mental health in the United States, especially amongst young people. It's uh, quite an alarming picture. But when trying to dig into the reasons for depression and despondency, one comes across this this argument, which seems to be quite widespread to the point of almost being a meme, we're not going to have children because the planet's dying. Uh, when, when we think about the United States, there seems to be something similar going on here. Maybe it can go further. Maybe fertility can, can fall further here. Uh, talk a little bit about the demographic future of, of, of America. There's an increase in mortality with particularly the deaths of despair story uh, having an impact there. It doesn't feel as if we're as dynamic demographically as we used to be. What's going on and is it going to get worse? But I would say it, it even maybe places this in context of catastrophizing generally, right? And and how you, know, you have this sort of... Uh, various forms of hysteria that seem to be amplified by various forms of, of social media and have taken root, particularly as Neil mentioned in the younger generation. Well, I started this population, you know, getting into this population thing about 50 years ago. And at that time, there was uh, actually a one of your Stanford colleagues was very much in the news in those days uh, because uh, uh, we were supposed to run out of food, and we were uh, India was supposed to uh, become a, a starvation zone by the seventies. Uh, and well, these, these, um, are, these and these are, of course, been long predicted. This is the Malthusian sort of approach to to you know, predicting the future. The, the neo-Malthusian view, and there was uh, there was a big, um, a very um, widely accepted or at least in certain circles very widely accepted fear of population growth uh, i was a commie back then but even as as a commie i thought that this was kind of preposterous because human beings kind of uh, seek their own interests and the, the people do things for reasons and it's a lot harder it's a lot harder for, uh, to make the argument that we're going to breed ourselves out of existence today obviously now whether we're going to pollute ourselves out of existence we seem to have some sort of uh, need for metaphysical excitement as other types of metaphysics you know kind of vanish from our lives i guess right. um, but with regard to fertility in our country we did something very odd for about a generation which is as a uh, as an affluent educated society uh we had a, a more or less replacement level childbearing uh regimen about almost 2.1 births per woman which is a lot higher than almost any other affluent country um since the uh depending if you since the uh, financial panic of 2008 or since the election of Obama you know you choose your marker uh fertility in the United States has come down uh pretty strongly not China strongly but it's uh 
culpably below replacement. And if you look at uh, the patterns for younger women, women in their uh, early 20s, uh, later 20s, early 30s, they're on a slow, on a lower trajectory than their older sisters or their mothers. And it's not impossible that we're on a path for a 1.6, which used to be kind of a European sort of style, or maybe even a 1.4, which is a little bit above a German sort of style. Um, but these things, of course, do change. Now, what's what's going on in the mentality? Uh, every It's a Rorschach test, and everybody can redo their own story. If I'm going to look at that story, I would point out to you the plummeting re religiosity of our rising generation of young Americans, the um, expounded lack of optimism about the future, uh, the uh, the decline in patriotism. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm not sure that patriotism is something that causes people to have babies, but it does seem to kind of uh, correlate with a whole plump of other um, viewpoints that have at least tracked with that in our uh, in our Western societies. So so that's one thing about the births. the uh, the death story is not a very happy one. I mean we have um, we have been kind of stuck uh, for the last decade and more in a very slow pace of improvement in overall life expectancy and obviously it dropped, ghastly uh during the uh during the covid uh calamity uh how how well we recover and get back on a good track remains to be seen um uh, there are lots of different things not just uh not just deaths of despair but uh cardiovascular disease is probably the big um anchor slowing us down I've, um, it looks a little bit too much like what we saw in Russia a while ago, ago for comfort for me to see some of this stuff that's going on, but leave that aside. Then we've got migration. Uh, and you know we've been a um, we have no migration policy as far as I can tell. And despite that, we're attracting talent from all over the world. Uh, the US and Switzerland are the two big, uh, you know, the two big magnets uh, for inventors from all around the world and people who don't have PhDs like to come here also. Uh, I, I am concerned that this awful situation we have at our southern border, this uh, heinous, um, feckless policy towards uh, security at our southern border may poison uh, popular attitudes towards immigration. We did have a big swing against immigration, uh, as you know, uh, back uh, in the populist era in the first Gilded Age. Uh, I would not like to see a big swing against immigration myself in our second Gilded Age. I think that everybody would lose from that. But sometimes uh, we seem to be capable of arranging political uh, structures in which everybody loses. The immigrants are the ones who want to come and pay our Social Security and Medicare taxes, and they also tend to have babies. So <laughs> there's some advantages to immigrants. They also, tend to, be, they also tend to be extremely patriotic and have yes. confidence in our like this market country. economic system, and they cherish the principles you know, on which our country was founded. You know, who, who, wants, who wants any of that? Even, yes. even present company of recent immigrants. This clearly you isn't the future <laughs> Paul Ehrlich uh, envisioned when he wrote the population bomb. And at some point, 
uh, presumably somebody's going to write some uh, opposite version of that book in which the real disaster is that humanity is going to die out. I think Elon Musk has occasionally expressed that yes. view that the real danger is population decline. Uh, it's worth adding, though, that, that the decline certainly isn't happening in, in Africa yet. And population there is going to continue uh, to grow as far as we, we can tell. In fact, I think all the population growth that there remains to be in the world is basically going to be in, in Africa. Uh, and, and that then feeds into a discussion about migration. Uh, there are magnets, uh, as you say, uh, Nick, for, for, for talent uh, uh, all over the world. It's not just the US and Switzerland, the UK and, and Europe generally are going sure. to attract a lot of these uh, a lot of these people. So are we looking forward to a world in which the population is going to hit some kind of plateau and then decline, including even Africa. And there will be very high levels of migration, which will then elicit backlashes, political backlashes of the sort you allude to. Is that the kind of 21st century we're in? There was an awful lot of migration around the world before we had fixed governments. We just didn't follow it very well. I mean, we follow migration now a lot better because we regard it as a sort of an issue of national sovereignty and national security. Uh, how much migration different countries will accept, I think in part will have to do with how good their own domestic fabric is at assimilating outsiders and making them into loyal and productive newcomers. Uh, and the Anglo, uh, the Anglophone affluent countries seem to be pretty good at doing that by comparison to some others. I mean, uh, not just the US and Canada and Australia and, and little New, New Zealand, but, uh, but the UK too, for better or worse. You may disagree with me about that one. When I look at the, when I look at the continent, uh, it looks to me like a much more mixed picture. Uh, I mean, there are probably immigration into uh, continental Europe is more of a success story than a lot of the political discussions suggest, but there are also a lot of problems. And uh, the, the migrant populations into, uh, into continental Europe uh, don't always have the same work rates as the receiving populations. The subtext obviously is coming, is flows of people from Muslim-majority countries coming into continental Europe. But even if you look at that, it's kind of a mystery to me. I mean, I mean, some of you all may have parsed this better. I mean, there are some receiving countries and some sending countries in the Ummah where you have much better uh, outcomes than other populations. So you look at the um, Indonesians going to the Netherlands, you never hear about them. That's because it's things are actually working well, out kind of well. A system built around asylum uh, and not around the economic immigration that allows in single men and then denies them work permits is is guaranteed to fail. I mean, it's, it's the problem is an assimilation problem. You want to let in families who want to come to work hard, and and uh, so that that's a. But let's get off the catastrophe of, of immigration. Hey, and if I could just if I could just make a Please, quick pitch turn. here as an as an American historian. Is is that you know that was that was the contrast between Massachusetts Bay Colony and Virginia. You know, Virginia was populated really with with all you know young men, uh, and it was families really in Massachusetts Bay, Bay Colony. And there's a, there's a whole literature on on why Massachusetts Bay Colony thrived and the early Virginia settlements disappeared. I have a question that links your world, uh, Nick's and and HR's. 
uh, because one of the things you've been writing about very compellingly uh, in your recent work on the US is the pretty unhealthy state of uh, the young American male. Uh, and this shows up in a variety of different ways. Uh, it shows up in labor market participation. Uh, it shows up in, in health uh, metrics. And I wanted to kind of connect the, this with HR's world where you are finding it harder and harder to recruit able-bodied young men into the military. Am I right in thinking that that is the case, HR? I seem to have read somewhere in the past week, and I foolishly didn't write it down, that it's it's going to be harder and harder to keep recruiting into the military because there are a smaller and smaller share of young men fit for military service, physically fit for it. Is that right? Yeah, that's right, <laughs> and and, uh, and it is a, it is a big it is a big problem. I think there are a number of problems that are interacting to create the recruiting uh, challenges that, that the that the military is having overall. But but this is the bit the biggest one. What you really want is you want a large population that that qualifies for military service, so you can be more selective within that large population. Now the the, the numbers that are available because of just not being physically fit. Uh, and also, also criminal records, for example, or or patterns of drug abuse. These are all disqualifiers. Not finishing secondary education. So, so that that pool is shrinking. So the the health of our society is restricting the numbers who are, who are qualified, even just to, to volunteer for military service. And what I would say to reap the tremendous benefits and, and rewards, uh, less tangible rewards associated with serving your country and serving as part of cohesive teams committed to one another and a mission bigger than themselves. More, you know, more young men and women are qualified for military service, but as Nick's work has shown, how about just qualified and willing to work, period? And so this might be the segue uh, into Nick's uh, scholarship over many years, recently updated post-COVID, on why, why people are leaving the workforce. So... This, this uh, flight from the workforce, the flight from the labor uh, market by men goes back to the mid-1960s, and it's been almost a straight line up uh, from 65, say, to the present. I did a first edition of this book that you kindly mentioned in 2016, and on the cover I showed uh, the regression line from 65 to 2016 for percentage of men not in labor force was almost a straight line. It was like 0.96 or something. Um, the eerie thing is that uh, for the second edition, you could just continue that line upwards. You didn't have to change the slope or the um, you know, the constant or anything. I can't explain that. Uh, it was It's eerie. Um, but we also now, I think, are starting to see a flight from work for women. We may have 7 million guys 25 to 54 in the U.S. who are neither working nor looking for work, but we've got about uh, 3 million girls, women 25 to 54 in that same age group who have no children at home, uh, who are neither working uh, nor in education or training, and aren't married. And um, this is not the sort of gender equality that I think we want to be seeing in the United States. And one of the kind of worrisome parts of this gender equality is that they are now starting to say that they take 
pain medication every day in about the same proportion that the dropout guys do, which is to say about half of the people in the this group, half of the women in this group are saying that they're taking pain uh, medication every day. Not a good sign. You, you, you talked about cultural things and the economist in me is, is rebelling. There are incentives here. Roughly speaking, once you're into the social program network, you lose a dollar worth of benefits for every dollar that you that you work, especially bad if you're on Social Security disability or, or some of these other cliffs. Um, you, you know, these, these people with no jobs and no nothing, somebody's paying the bills somehow. Sure. And, you know, in the old days, men had to go to work because they had to support families. Well, if they're not married and 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 uh, not supporting families. So this there are incentives at work here. It's not just sort of a nebulous cultural shift that happened. Uh, no lo contendre. I agree with you. But do the, <laughs> do the thought experiment with me. Let's take our current um, dysfunctional, crazy quilt uh, social benefit programs in the time machine and take them back to Salem, Massachusetts in uh, 1670 and try to guess uh, what proportion of the population there would be en enrolled in uh, food stamps. I would um, say ex exactly what we have now. Um, you know. Well, um, my, it's inconclusive because we can't can't see what would come out. But my guess is it would be a lot lower in uh, Puritan New England because there would have been a lot of people there who would have thought that if they did that, they'd be going to hell. And hell isn't quite as strong a sales, uh, sales item nowadays. The original pilgrims started in a communitarian thing where they were all going to share everything. And they tried that for a year or two and it didn't work at all. Nobody was working. And then they said, you know what? You're going to have your own plot and you're going to eat what comes off your own plot. Bingo. <laughs> okay. For our viewers, for additional reading on the subject, check out T.H. Breen's Puritans and Adventurers. So I'll put in that plug for some good old colonial history. Okay. Well, Nick Everstadt, thanks for coming on <laughs> Goodfellas today. We hope to have you on the show again and come out to Stanford. Come, come visit us when it stops raining. Force me. If the airplane gods ever work. Let us shift from catastrophe and hysteria in demographics to a catastrophe and hysteria in the banking industry, specifically the implosion of Silicon Valley Bank, or SVB, for short, the largest American bank failure since the financial crisis of 2008. Uh, at the moment, the second largest bank failure in U.S. history. The Treasury Department announcing Sunday night that the FDIC will use its deposit insurance fund to pay back account holders at SVB, along with Signature Bank in New York, which is heavy in crypto. President Biden went before the cameras this morning about 30 minutes before the markets opened to assure us the banking system is sound. And he called on Congress for more regulation. John, a lot to unpack here. Uh, why did SVB melt down? Where were and where are the regulators? Is this a bailout and the health of the banking industry? But let's begin with this, John. SVB is kind of a fabled Silicon Valley story. It's a story of a bank that was started by two guys who were playing poker one night. Is this a simple, John? It's a story of a bank that was created over a poker game, making a very bad wager on interest rates. Uh, pretty much, <laughs> yes. Uh, which isn't, uh, you know, that's to be expected. The, the story, there's a lot of fun with the malfeasance uh, of this of this bank and what they did. But the big story that I see is the complete failure of the regulatory system, uh, which has been promising us since the Dodd-Frank Act that all these things are solved. This was an elephant in the room. This was not complicated toxic derivatives or something strange or off balance sheet entities. This is the classic way banks have been failing since Neil helped me 1622, <laughs> where we had the first bank. Uh, the, the basic picture was just combine 
uh, lots of um, deposits that were bigger than the minimum, the, the maximum you can get insured. So lots of uninsured deposits, companies with literally millions of dollars in bank accounts that, that know they have a chance of losing of anything. Plus the bank takes that money and puts it in long-term treasuries and long-term mortgage-backed securities, which on their own are, are very nice, safe securities, but not if you've borrowed a bunch of run-prone money. Interest rates go up, duh, interest rates go up sometime. The value of those assets, if you need to sell them, falls. And we're at the point, this isn't a magic bank run or illiquidity, it's just plain old insolvent. Uh, they cannot sell, if they sell those securities to make good on the depositors, uh, who have every incentive to run, then they're out of business and the bank ran. It, it's just the simplest thing in the world. Now, where were the regulators? Hundreds of thousands of pages of regulation and they could they could not see and did not see this most basic thing happening. So I what I this proves to me that this architecture of regulation uh is 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 completely failed. As we already saw this in the in the 2020 stuff, although that wasn't quite so clear to people's minds. Mm -hmm. But it's not clear whether it's uh, stupidity, institutional incapacity, or just the rules are so complicated that you can't do a kind of calculation that an undergraduate can do in, in 20 minutes if they just look at this massive mismatch of, of interest rate risk on the assets and, and run-prone liabilities. Mm -hmm. Neil? The other thing to say here is that we now know what systemic means, and that is whatever the authorities decide, it's entirely arbitrary what banks are regarded as being of systemic uh, significance. And the other thing is that everything is implicitly insured, like all deposits are now implicitly insured, rather than up to the threshold the FDIC had, uh, had raised it to 250,000. So these are fairly big changes uh, and they they make, as John has rightly said, the entire edifice of regulation created after the financial crisis essentially a pile of meaningless verbiage. But there's another point which I think we need to focus on, and that is what does this mean for the Federal Reserve's strategy to bring down inflation? Now, some of us have been saying for months and months and months that with monetary policy and its famous uh, long and variable lags, you raise rates, what? Uh, four and a half percentage points, at some point, something breaks. The interesting thing is that the central banks kept telling us, you'll remember this, John, oh, it's the non-bank sector that you need to worry about. There are hidden pools of leverage there. So we're all looking around the non-bank sector trying to figure out what was going to break. And the thing that broke was a bank, actually a bunch of banks, because it's not just one bank that went down. There were a whole, well, three have gone down and more may follow. So we got a banking crisis. This is a further indictment of the regulatory framework, but also makes me wonder, how does the Fed now pull off the supposed soft landing or no landing that is going to bring inflation back down towards 2% without a recession, and we all live happily ever after? Surely, John, let me put this to you. There's now a massive contradiction between what the Fed is trying to do to bring down inflation by raising rates and what it's now doing to prevent a banking crisis by, in effect, restarting quantitative easing. Because, I mean, that seems to me to be what they've done. Do you agree? Well, it's more than quantitative easing. It is a handout. <laughs> this is real resources that are going into the pockets of everybody who lost money. And so we're we're once we are in firmly in the regime of make money in good times by leveraging up and taxpayers come give you money in the bad times. We are once again ratcheting up. We do this over and over again. A new class of, of creditors gets bailed out. 
Um, and then we'll promise ourselves to pass new rules to not let it happen again. And then it happens again and larger and larger uh, creditors get bailed out. So yes, effectively, uh, bank deposits are all now insured. And a lot of people who made a lot of money on, on high leverage, high yield stuff uh, got, got money courtesy of the taxpayer. But over and above that, something called the Bank Term Funding Program has now been created. This was done on Sunday, uh, Sunday evening, and that is going to be a new line of credit available to banks. And get this, uh, they'll be able to borrow against collateral that won't need to be marked to market. In fact, yes, uh, those bonds value. will be treated as if they haven't lost any value at all since the Fed started hiking. I'm sorry, but this is kind of crazy. They can borrow literally twice as much as what such securities are worth on the open market against these securities as collateral. That's an example of where we're, yes, if the Fed wants to raise interest rates, fine, it's just going to make everybody whole who, who put that bet in on interest rates not happening. What I can't figure out, John, is does this tighten financial conditions or ease them? I guess it's easing them compared with where we would be if they had not bailed out the deposit, the uninsured depositors. But I don't know whether this makes the inflation risk greater over, let's say, a year. My gut feeling is that it does. And that if I would go out on a limb, I would say this is the moment the Fed blinked and we really are in the 1970s. And he really is Arthur Burns. He's not Paul Volcker. Am I right in thinking about it this way? Or or, or is, in fact, there now enough of a spasm of anxiety in markets for the recession to happen and the pain more or less to be unavoidable now. I can't quite make up my mind about where we are as the smoke clears. Well, I'll guess that the Fed will probably pause uh, raising rates because they're worried about it and that this has fiscal consequences, which uh, raise inflation. So I think you're right in both cases. And there is a chance. Generally, recessions need a spark. Uh, and that spark is usually financial. So there is a chance of some general speaking financial uh, pullback that will that will. Uh, push us towards the recession and and uh, slow down that process. But I think the, the bigger picture is uh, I'm still more outraged by the abject failure of this financial regulatory uh, system, uh, which we, I mean, the big picture is we are still in the land of the federal government will come and drop money on every single problem that comes. And, and that, that's got to end. And that's fundamentally why we have so much inflation coming. Hey, John and Neil, you know, what I've been hearing is, is of course, that they're going to be able to do all this, that that we'll be able to resolve this problem without any cost at all to the American taxpayer. True or false? And then if true, how is that possible? False. Okay. Money doesn't grow on trees. <laughs> this is not about liquidity. This is about people lost money. And uh, that money is going to come, you know, for example, we're going to money from the taxpayer. So the Federal Reserve is going to give people twice what securities are worth as, as a loan. That, you know that since money doesn't come down trees, it eventually uh, comes down to the taxpayer. So, John, what will divided Congress end up doing here? Elizabeth Warren said the New York Times with an op-ed saying it's time to re-regulate, but she's one vote in the Senate. Whatever she comes up in the Senate, Republican House will shoot down. So will we see anything coming out of Congress? I don't know what they will do. It's hard to make the case we need more than the hundreds of thousands of pages of rules we got, right. uh, especially when this is so simple. You know, remember Wonderful Life when, when Jimmy Stewart's bank Carter examiner Martin. comes in? Carter, bank examiner. Mr. Carter? That guy could have figured this out. <laughs> His undergraduate assistant could have figured this out. Now, it's possible that the rules are so complicated <laughs> that they didn't let you see an elephant in the room here. But adding more rules is not the answer to, to that question. 
Mm-hmm. And you know, what about the culture of Silicon Valley? One word to use for this is humbling, that here's a big swaggering bank uh, takes venture capitalist money and it's collapsed. So what does that say about the culture of technology? Well, I think there are a couple of things uh, going on here. There's the crypto angle. There's something right. slightly surreal about the uh, libertarian proponents of cryptocurrency uh, screaming to be made whole uh, by the FDIC. Uh, but I think it's probably worth seeing this as part of a broad crisis uh, in the tech sector. Uh, I mean, I think future financial historians will say things had been pretty ugly already in the tech sector in 2022. And one of the ways that they were ugly was that a bank uh, like uh, Silicon Valley Bank ended up with a pile of of deposits uh, from startups that really couldn't do much with the money. And it couldn't do much with the money on the other side of the balance sheet because there was no lending to be done. And therefore, they uh, somewhat foolishly parked it all in, in long-term government bonds. I think that the, the crisis at this point is mainly a West Coast crisis. Mm-hmm. The reason that I think the, the Fed stepped in to make the uninsured creditors whole, however, was that there was quite a potential for contagion beyond the tech sector. I'm still trying to work out why certain hedge fund managers were, were screaming for rescue uh, through the weekend. And I wondered if uh, there was some kind of trade going on there. Uh, because I think the exposure extended far beyond the depositors of, uh, of, of Silicon Valley Bank. I think that if those companies that had money with the bank hadn't been able to make payroll today, there would have been quite significant consequences, to say nothing of the run on other banks that were heavily marked down in the markets today. By the way, I don't think this crisis is over. Uh, Financial crises of this sort, if you think back to the 70s and the 80s, or indeed to 2008-9, can actually play out over weeks, even months. This has been a pretty significant tightening of monetary policy that the Fed has done. And as I said at the beginning of this discussion, many of us said at some point something will break. We just didn't know what it would be. And I certainly can't claim to have foreseen that it would be Silicon Valley Bank. But I think we have to remember that this thing has further to run. And it's not clear to me that the measures that were taken over the weekend have, in fact, staunched the crisis of confidence in a whole bunch of banks, uh, of which Silicon Valley Bank was only one. So watch this space. I don't think it's over. Can I just ask, John, if you agree with Neil's assessment that this could go on? I remember the chart in your blog where you showed that Silicon Valley Bank was an outlier, at least in terms of the the degree to which it had invested in long-term treasuries. There were others in that sort of extreme category. Do you think it's limited to the category of banks that that over-invested in long-term treasuries, or do you think it could be broader? Well, this particular question, so a, a big interest rate risk exposure unhedged, combined with lots of uninsured deposits who have an incentive to run, seems to be uh, not something common to lots and lots of other banks. But there is, you know, as Neil will say, so I'll once say there's something psychological about it. There's a general, you don't know. And if our, our regulators could not spot this massive elephant in the room, who knows what's going on at the other banks? Um, so, so I... I, I This particular problem, from what I have seen, seems to be small. But on the other hand, 
who knows what's out there and and all it takes is people go on who knows now the fact that all deposits are now guaranteed this astonishing fact uh, no matter how large you are your deposits are guaranteed that that should help a lot in stemming uh, additional runs but we'll but now we'll see what else um, you now most banks are not primarily funded from deposits most banks are funded from wholesale money from short-term borrowing and markets. That stuff is completely not guaranteed. Uh, those people could run in a moment if they're uh, so. So more banks are 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 risky on that side as well. Final thing to add on this is I think by and large, although I haven't gone through this line by line, in the wake of a banking crisis like this, it's very rare for the Federal Reserve to continue tightening monetary policy. And that means that all those people who just a few days ago were saying the terminal rate for Fed funds would be 6.25 are radically retelling their story uh, with the five handle or lower. And indeed, the markets are expecting rate cuts in the second half of the year. So I think this represents a shift uh, ultimately in monetary policy as well as in uh, financial regulation. And my sense is that that must on balance be inflationary. You know, this is not a number of people drew analogies with Paul Volcker and the failure of continental Illinois in 1984. They forget that that was two years after Volcker had broken the back of inflation. Whereas this thing is happening with inflation still at 6%. We'll see what it is tomorrow. And I think in that sense, for the Fed to blink now, that suggests to me that we're going to have a longer lasting inflation problem than uh, many people were assuming just a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. John, final thoughts? Uh, uh, who, who knows what's going to happen? I, <laughs> uh, I agree with Neil. You know, Badgett said uh, lend freely at a penalty rate. Somehow we went into the lend freely, but not the penalty rate part. Uh, so Neil's forecast that the Fed will probably uh, stop raising rates and, and lower them, I think, is correct, that they're going to be worried. Neil's also right. Uh, you know, Bear Stearns happened a long time before Lehman. These things play out uh, over time, and they only really turn into a crisis on the third a fourth and fifth one. Who knows what, you know, maybe this is over. Maybe this is, there's, you know, MF Global went down and and, and nobody seemed to care. Uh, so there's, there's certainly a lot more uncertainty about what will happen next. Uh, and I absolutely agree with Neil on that one. It's a good time to be blogging on economics. And John Cochran's blog, if you're not familiar, is called The Grumpy Economist. By all means, check it out. He has brilliant posts already up on SVB. Gentlemen, one final segment. And uh, last night, the Academy Awards. Uh, we talked about this a couple of days ago. Uh, we all were interested in the plight of one movie, and that was All Quiet on the Western Front, which had a successful night. It walked away with four Oscars, Best Original Score, Best Production Design, Best Cinematography, Neil Ferguson pointing out what cinematographic it was great, and Best International Feature. Uh, it was not named Best Picture, but it was named Best Film at the British Film Academy Awards. Neil, I want to turn to you. This is the second World War I movie up for a Best Picture in the last three years, 1917, uh, <clears throat> being up for the award in 2020. Uh, Neil, you wrote the book, The Pity of War, which uh, re-examined the Great War, the causes of it. Uh, you're someone who proudly wears a red poppy every fall in, in commemoration of the uh, young men who lost their lives in that struggle. Is there something about World War I, Neil, that is particularly cinematic? Well, you might say it's almost the opposite. It's so horrific uh, mm -hmm. that your uh, eye is in some ways uh, glued to the horror. Uh, right. The Western Front uh, had some of the ugliest uh, warfare of all time. Uh, and this new version of All Quiet on the Western Front depicts it very graphically and, and harrowingly. 
Uh, and I, I think that uh, explains why uh, over a century after the event, uh, filmmakers are still uh, drawn to it. I, I thought it was a fantastic film technically. Uh, the cinematography is absolutely striking. And I also thought that performance by the young central character, Felix Camera, who plays uh, Paul, the central uh, figure in the book, was... Uh, worthy of an Oscar. It was a terrific and completely captivating performance. There were things about the film I didn't like so much. Uh, compared with the original adaptation of the book, Lewis Milestone's uh, Black and White, uh, All Quiet, in which the characters are essentially Americans. I mean, they're played yes. by American actors and they speak with American accents. And I suspect that that earlier version therefore connects more powerfully with... Uh, with with an American audience. And it ends up being a somewhat pro-German account of the end of the war. The thing that got me slightly was the way in which the French and German delegations in the armistice negotiations were portrayed, the French as supercilious uh, uh, and insufferable uh, uh, the militarists and the Germans as uh, as, uh, as as civilians uh, asking for humane treatment, it wasn't like that, uh, and I thought that was uh, I thought that was off. There was also a very implausible final assault, uh, which is what gets the hero killed. Uh, I don't think that can have happened. It was impossible to motivate German soldiers to engage in those kinds of attacks. By the end, they'd basically gone and strike. Uh, by late summer of of 1918. But those are the kinds of things historians always say about films, no matter how good they are. As a film, it's terrific. Even if it's history, I have a few problems. Let's hear from somebody who's actually been in combat. HR? Well, you know, the movie is is about, you know, the futility of, of World War One and the stalemate and the lack of of sense of agency that soldiers and, and units had. And And of course, you know, anybody who has been exposed to the the traumas of war, the the you know the inhumaneness of war, you know, could be potentially scarred by that experience, or or carry you know carry those those difficult memories uh, with them. Uh, but but you know I, I think what is is actually most damaging uh, to those uh, who emerge from you know from those harrowing experiences is is a sense that they had no control over the events, and and you see this with you know the detachment of the senior command, for example. Uh, senior command that is incompetent, uh, that is willing to sacrifice soldiers' lives uh, for meaningless tactical gains, if even that, uh, the, the, the vast you know, carnage of, of the war. You get a sense for the degree to which conscripted forces uh, or volunteer forces, many of them in, the, in this case, were thrown into battle ill-prepared, uh, having not been trained adequately for, uh, for combat. And, you know, I, I did think a little bit about just the importance of the psychological and the moral and ethical preparation of soldiers and units for combat. And there's some important, there's important lessons there as well. I mean, that one scene uh, in the crater where the protagonist uh, stabs uh, a, a French, a French soldier, and then laments the fact uh, that he, that he stabbed a, a real, relatively defenseless French soldier at that moment. Um, and you know, I, I think that it's important that to preserve kind of a warrior ethos that is important to combat effectiveness, but also it is also what makes war less inhumane is the discipline, the professionalism of forces that fight as cohesive teams and expect ethical conduct from one another as well. Mm -hmm. John? 
Well, that, that was great. Um, World War I is not cinematic. I, I disagree with your premise. And that's the whole point. It, it was the unheroic war. Very hard to make movies uh, about it. We make movies about World War II and pretend that it was easy to be heroic. Right. Um, but I think it's important for people like me who did not have the privilege to serve. I've never seen what combat is like to, to understand what war is. Now, I'll grant the HR's point. This was a, a, a bad war, an incompetently fought war, but nonetheless, uh, what we're seeing in modern cinematography, uh, Private Ryan was was very influential to me. Uh, it's just some sense for normal people like us. This is what war is. This is what our, our Ukrainians are, are suffering right now. And, and one reason why I, I think we ought to get that over with uh, quickly. Uh, but we need to understand that. And, and uh, you know, back to HR's point in the previous segment, one of the problems with military recruiting is that Stanford undergrads <laughs> have no idea what, what war is, both positive and negative. We don't live in a society where uh, normal people serve their country in the military, uh, come back, and that that is a way towards uh, a, a high status or a, a part of society. So it's walled off from most of us. So I think uh, I think it's very important to, to see the the ugly reality of, of what war is, um, whether fought well or, or fought poorly. And um, it, this, I, I think that's one of the best things to, to just meditate on when you, when you see this. Can I add something, John? This film, of course, came out at the time of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And in some ways it was unfortunate that a, a German director should produce a version of the great anti-war uh, book. I mean, All Quiet on the Western Front was one of the most powerful anti-war books to come out of the interwar period. Uh, you might be forgiven for thinking the message of this film is just that war is bad. I don't think that's how a Ukrainian audience would see it. Uh, I think from a Ukrainian vantage point, this is a film shot from the vantage point of the invaders. Uh, it is not shot from the vantage point of the French, whom we only really see very briefly uh, towards the end. But remember, the French were fighting to defend their country from an invader that had occupied a very large part of it, just as the Russians have occupied a large part of and, Ukraine. And, and you get a sense of this it, it, with this tragedy at the very end, right, yeah. where two of the protagonists who had survived so much and seen so many of their buddies killed, they go to they go to, to rob, you know, to rob a farmhouse or, or to liberate a, a goose and some eggs to have a, a, de a decent meal. And, and, and German soldiers were starving toward the end of the war, in, in part because of a very successful blockade that the Allies had put in uh, at, at the end of the war. And, and what happens is the farmer's son kills the, you know, the main protagonist's best friend. Uh, for for having stolen from his farm, and you get a sense of the the outrage of the French people and the younger generation, and of course, you know the the, the grudge that they will hold against the Germans, uh, and then will be magnified again after the reinvasion of France in June of nineteen forty. Uh, I don't think that's the message of All Quiet on the Western Front. I, I did have not seen the movie. I'm sorry to say, but. Um, um, it's about the tragedy and the dehumanizing effect of war on on both sides. These were young German conscripts who didn't know much of what they were going to, as the young French conscripts didn't. And yes, France was defending itself against inflation at that point. But remember the way this started, plan, plan de set was let's get to Berlin before they get to Paris. Um, so it's, it's not uh, at that point, yes, but not entirely through the 
through the war. So I think the real message here is there there is an awfulness to war. So let it, if we have to do it, let it be done well, as HR uh, em emphasizes and professionally and with excellent civilian uh, reasons for doing the war and excellent military commands. Uh, and let us also remember um, how horrible it is uh, if, if it goes badly. Final question, we'll call it a day. HR, the most powerful war movie you've ever seen would be? Oh my gosh. I mean, uh, <laughs> there's so many. I mean, I, I, it's it's hard to say, Bill. I, I, I mean, I like The Longest Day a lot. I think that's that's great. I like, uh, um, I, I also like A Bridge Too Far, you know, because it gets at intelligence failures and groupthink and, 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 uh, I, you know, I love Gettysburg, you know, because of the, the role of contingency in battle and 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 the actions that Buford takes uh, at, at at Seminary Ridge, uh, and and his visualization of the battle. Um, gosh, you know, I, I'll tell you, I think in general, though, uh, war films don't do a good job of of explaining the human dimension of war, of what motivates warriors, what animates their souls, you know, that you know why they fight. Uh, and, and and do what they do in combat. So, um, I mean, there are a number of great war movies, but none of them really stands in, out in my mind above above all others. John, you mentioned Private Ryan. Would that get your vote, or you have another film in mind? I, I can't outdo uh, HR on the review of all the many war war movies. I I I, I watch them with this interest of a civilian in in just what is this and and what is this experience so vastly different from from my uh, everyday life that's that's what i get out of it okay and neil your choice uh well the movie that made the biggest impact on me when i was a boy was 633 squadron which is uh uh a world war ii uh or a film about the about world war ii royal air force uh pilot crews who who essentially are assigned an enormously dangerous mission uh suffer tremendous casualties as a result, but carry out the mission successfully. The last line of that film will always stay with me. Uh, the uh, commanding officer watches the last uh, surviving planes limp home and lighting his pipe utters the immortal line, you can't kill a squadron. And, and there's a tremendously powerful message there about the nature of military sac sacrifice and pursuit of an objective. However, in later life, I saw one of the old-time achievements of uh, cinematography, which is uh, the Soviet version of War and Peace. Uh, and if you've never seen that, you've missed out on some of the great battle scenes uh, ever filmed, where uh, the director, Bondarchuk, had the entire Red Army at his disposal. And uh, that's, that's absolutely to be seen. It's a wonderful adaptation of the greatest novel ever written, and it doesn't get uh, seen by nearly enough uh, people in the Anglosphere. Sounds good. Well, gentlemen, we're going to leave it there. Thank you for a spirited conversation today. Uh, for our loyal viewers, we'll be back later this month with a new episode. On behalf of the Goodfellows, Neil Ferguson, John Cochran, H.R. McMaster, our guest today, Nick Eberstadt, we hope you enjoyed the show, and we'll see you soon. Till then, take care. Thanks for watching. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in listening to more content featuring H.R. McMaster, subscribe to Battlegrounds, also available at hoover.org slash battlegrounds.